I'm here because of my mom and my grandma, my great grandma, my great grandfather, my grandfather. That is important to my narrative. Our stories are more than just us. They don't start when we come of age, when we're born, or not even when our parents meet. The thread can go back as far as you want it to. And for Jacqueline Woodson, there is nothing more important than acknowledging and protecting that. Jacqueline is an icon in children's literature, honored with just about every award. Newbery, Coretta Scott King, National Book Award, MacArthur Genius Grant. My friend, librarian Cicely Lewis, sums it up pretty well. She's a legend. When you hear her name, there's some authors, they're just like actors, like Cicely Tyson. If you know that there's Cicely Tyson's in a movie, you know that's a good movie. And Jacqueline Woodson is on that level. If Jacqueline Woodson writes a book, I know, I just know, her reputation precedes her. Fortunately for us, Jacqueline Woodson continues to put out that great content, building on the legacy of her three-decade career. And she's fighting to keep the voices of the past alive, while also empowering the writers of the future. What I know about young people is they haven't been broken and they're fiery and and they're ready to fight for this world and their existence in it. In today's episode, Jacqueline stresses the importance of acknowledging the past within the narratives of the present. She reflects on the industry's evolution throughout her extensive career and she tells us why she thinks modern day education needs to make more room for and embrace different kinds of learning and thinking. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Also, remember to join The Reading Culture on Instagram at The Reading Culture Pod and sign up for our new newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter to hear more from our authors, access bonus content, and learn about exclusive giveaways like author signed books. Finally, please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star rating. When you were younger, what would, if you think, if your siblings were to characterize you, how would they characterize Jackie? You went by Jackie. <laughs> you know, my sister always said I was immature, that I was annoying, <laughs> that I was um, a tattletale. I think all the things that older siblings think of younger siblings, I, I was that child. And I was that kid who always wanted to hang with my big sister who didn't want to hang with me. I think they didn't have a sense of my interior life in the way that siblings don't. We weren't that kind of family. I mean, we knew our exterior selves, the selves that um, we encountered when we were playing board games or playing tag on the street, but I don't think we knew what kind of interior monologues we were having. I feel like I had a better sense of my siblings than they had of me. Huh. Why do you think that is? I think because I was much more of a watcher than they were. They were into other stuff. Like my brother was such a mad scientist and my sister was just this kind of deep intellectual that used fiction as an escape, Um, not writing it, but reading it. And so, you know, in terms of my little brother, I don't know him so much. I think of him as a younger me, but in terms of my older siblings, you do spend your childhood studying them while they're like just trying to flick you off like a fly (laughs) because it's aspirational, right? 
Yeah, and you've written a lot about your siblings and how they thrived academically, especially your older sister who was deemed gifted. I was wondering if you ever thought about how they viewed you through that lens, considering that you struggled early on. I think they thought I was a pain in the butt because um, there was no room for academic failure in our family. You know, my mother, that was her thing. You had to read, you had to excel academically. And if I was doing poorly, they got blamed because they both were doing fabulously. And so they had to spend time with me with my homework. They had to spend time with me with reading. They had to make sure that I was doing okay in school. And I think, you know, time that they could have been playing or something was like, we got to go help Jackie with her homework. So I think that was interesting, especially looking back on it. We also, we all had to have dinner together. Like that was one of the rules of the house, not the grownups, but the kids, like we all had to sit down to dinner together. And I think that was the time where we actually had some conversation that was not inside the realms of academia, but I I don't really remember what happened. I do look back on it and think that like my siblings and I get together for every birthday, every, we make sure we have a texture and like there is this way in which we're deeply connected to each other that must have happened around that dinner table. It must have happened during all the times that my mom said, you know, you don't have to go outside, you have each other to play with because <laughs> we were four kids together. Um, but it is, it's interesting. I should, now I'm not going to ask them what they thought of me. <laughs> I feel like I know. <laughs> Okay, Jacqueline. So in rereading a lot of your work, there's just this really interesting thought that you carry throughout. And I wanted to read these two quotes or passages in particular. The first is from Brown Girl Dreaming and reads, maybe the truth is somewhere in between all that I'm told and memory. And the second quote is from uh, Red at the Bone. And it goes, every day since she was a baby, I told Iris this story how they came with intention, how the only thing they wanted was to see us gone, our money gone, our shops and schools and libraries, everything just good and gone. And even though it happened 20 years before I was even a thought, I carry it. I carry the goneness. Iris carries the goneness. And watching her walk down those stairs, I know that my grandbaby carries the goneness too so beautiful. (laughs) So the reason I chose those two passages is because when I reread Brown Girl Dreaming, I was so interested by the very early stories in your early childhood, because this is your memoir. And at the same time, many of the stories that you tell as your own were clearly passed down to you. And they are what you carry, like the goneness and red at the bone, this, this idea of carrying the past from your beginning and forward. That just really struck me. I think I think of it just as that it's a continuum. And that's why I start right at the bone with, but that afternoon there was an orchestra playing to show the reader that they're dropped down into the middle of something, that this is not the beginning, that we're not the beginning, that I'm here because of my mom and my grandma, my great grandma, my great grandfather, my grandfather. And that that is important to my narrative and how I got to story and how I got to being all the things that I am. And I think that it's an interesting paradigm right now because so much of what's happening is this attempted erasure of 
that narrative, that attempt to break a line. And so for me in the fiction, it is so much about keeping that continuum going, that someone's going to come along after me and tell a story that's connected to the story that I've told. I'm telling the story that's connected to the writers and the relatives who came before me. And, and it's important for me in so many ways and one of the biggest ways to know that I'm not here by accident and I'm not here alone. When do you think that that came to you, that understanding? Definitely the older I get, the more I understand it. But I do think even as a child and being kind of a melancholy child, it was somewhere inside of me. Um, And I was always thinking about old people and who was here before me and history and even geography, like just wanting to understand kind of the enormity of our existences mine in particular because I was a child and it was all it. But, and I think it does come too from coming from a religious background and all that that carries, but just wanting to have a sense of what I mean in the world and why I'm here. And I, and I think as kids, we always ask those kind of philosophical young questions and think we're understanding and not necessarily doing so. But I do think from a very young age, I was questioning. I did read a couple of books that you frequently reference as having read when you were younger, which I don't know if they're the passages you chose, but I also feel like how could you not be melancholy because I'm like, these just would not, if I pick up Little Batch Girl and read that to my, (laughs) I mean, you can, you do, you know, but it's like, they don't make them like that anymore. (laughs) I know. I know. It's so true because that's coming, even, you know, the grim fairy tales, there was this violence that was about trying to teach, right? And I think now we have the conversations in a kinder way um, that don't always seem to work. But um, when you look at something like Little Match Girl, it really did, it's a devastating story, you know, and it's kind of shrouded in fairy tale, kind of. But at the same time, in its brutality, it's showing us empathy, right? For me, I was horrified that something like that could happen to a child, you know, anybody, let alone a child. And even from a young age, the first thing you think is, that's unfair, that's unfair. And that that's unfair becomes the conversation that's about social justice and empathy and and wanting to reset the world in some way and make it right. Yes, the town is dreary. On August afternoons, the road is empty, white with dust, and the sky above is bright as glass. Nothing moves. There are no children's voices, only the hum of the mill. The peach trees seem to grow more crooked every summer, and the leaves are dull gray and of a sickly delicacy. The house of Miss Amelia leans so much to the right that it is now only a question of time when it will collapse completely. And people are careful not to walk around the yard. There is no good liquor to be bought in the town. The nearest still is eight miles away. And the liquor is such that those who drink it grow warts on their livers the size of goobers and dream themselves into a dangerous inward world. There is absolutely nothing to do in the town. Walk around the mill pond, stand kicking at a rotten stump, 
figure out what you can do with the old wagon wheel by the side of the road near the church. The soul rots with boredom. You might as well go down to the Forks Falls Highway and listen to the chain gang. Carson McCullers, a Georgia-born Southern Gothic writer, published her novella, Ballad of the Sad Cafe, in 1951 as part of a collection that included six short stories. With a remarkable ability to portray Southern life in an honest, palpable way, her work has become a lasting account of this bygone era through a lens of acceptance and empathy for marginalized people. Her carefully crafted poetic sentences are simple but vivid, dropping us right into, as Jacqueline would describe it, a previous chapter of America's Continuum. I remember hearing an album, and this is when I was first starting to really, really think about writing in a deeper way. And I heard Carson McCullers read on this album, and I realized that her Southern accent was one we don't hear anymore. You might as well walk down to the Fox Falls Highway and listen to the chain gang. The people who spoke the way she was speaking, so many of them are no longer with us. Like, just because even the lilt of our language changes. I think about how my mom and grandma speak, and then I go down south where my other relatives are in that same part of Greenville, and they don't speak like my mother and grandmother spoke. So I remember hearing her read from this, and I can never get the way she read it out of my head. I I realize so much of what I wrote after this is informed by this passage. And when did you read it? When did you first read it? I first read it probably in 1990, 1989, 1990. Wow. I feel like that description of like the souls with the boredom, and you know, it really describes, it's like something of a time and an age and it feels like you just, that is like a piece of history now. Like it will never get that back, you know? It's so true. Go down to the Forks Fall Highway and listen to the chain gang. The chain gang's gone. Just that quietude. And also just the fact that she doesn't use a lot of, lot of adjectives. You know, she just tells it like it is and it's, and it's still so beautifully effective in this way that you can just kind of feel this dead town. Even in that, she never talks about the heat of it, but like it just feels like a hot, dusty, dry, dead town. Yeah, you can feel it. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure you really can feel it from this summer from, as remembering those summer days. Oh, man. Days. So true. Yeah. But also, I do think that the way you just how you said that she doesn't, I think that is also like your writing. There's very little excess, if any. I mean, I don't know how you like go, what your revision process looks like or where it starts from, but it's like every word needs to be there. <laughs> yeah. I don't like extra words. <laughs> I, I remember when I used to teach and Students would be like, she wore a purple dress and walked down the street and the, and it was like, why is the dress purple? Like, what does that have to do with the narrative? Like, I just really don't like extra language (laughs) because the minute I read a word, I think it's going to tell me something about this story. And if it doesn't deliver, then I get cranky. What was it like having you as a mom in English class? (laughs) Was there like a rule? Like, I'm not going to be, I won't be reading any of your papers. (laughs) Oh, they would never let me read their stuff. Never. My kids just don't. <laughs> I'd love to go back to when you first started out as a writer and 
you know, what was it like in those early days and what was the atmosphere that you were working in at that time? It was two different worlds. So there was the world of me working full time. I had written Last Summer with Mason, my first um, book. It was published, got a review in the Times. It got a little traction, but it didn't have this huge life. At the same time, I was writing short stories. I was writing poetry. I was sending stuff off to The New Yorker. It was the age of writers like Jane McInerney, Tama Janowitz. It was a very white literary world that I was not invited to the parties of. It was interesting because I just thought this literary world where you read in New York Magazine about these parties going on and these deals getting struck is not the world of people of color. Writers like Juno Diaz and Edwige Danticat started getting published. Jamaica Kincaid was kind of out there, but she was not... It was different. And then I remember specifically when um, Walter Mosley, me, all of us left Penn American Center because they had some practices that were, let's say, not (laughs) anti-racist. And so the whole bunch of people of color just walked away. All of this stuff was going on. And then I wrote, I got a fellowship to the Fine Arts Work Center. I was still working many jobs. I had stopped doing drama therapy, but I was um, I was doing temp work because drama therapy was taking up too much of my mental space. Um, and I wanted to do something mindless so I could write. I first got a fellowship to McDowell and then I went to the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, which is a seven month fellowship. They give you a stipend and they give you a place to write. And that's where I met Nick Flynn. I met Tim Siebels. I met all these other writers. And I ended up living in Provincetown for five years because that was where I could write and have keep a low overhead. <laughs> and, and that's when I really started writing and continued to see the racial divide that was happening in the world of publishing. So you were and still are in so many different spaces, like spaces with writers of color and Black writers, queer writers, children's literature, adult literature. I mean, it's an interesting perspective and a unique one to have seen all of these spaces evolve over the years. Can you talk a little bit about that? I remember um, when Dorothy Allison's Bastard Out of Carolina came out, which was a book I love. I love Dorothy. I love that book. And still there was not a lot of space for writers of color in the world of children's books. So I, in in that space, I was writing autobiography of a family photo, which was my first adult book. And in that space, I was also writing the dear one, Melanin's son and dealing with all of that world. In the children's space, I have Virginia Hamilton. I have Walter D. Myers. I had um, the McKissicks. I, so I, I had a village inside the world of children's books and I wanted to break down the doors in the very white world of adult publishing. And it's interesting to see many years later how much has changed in terms of the writers that you do remember and the writers that, like you see, Edwige is still writing, you know, Juno's still writing, Walter's still writing, and then some of the white folks have disappeared. I remember there was a certain style of writing that was like all second person and stylistic, and I was just like, this ain't going to last. <laughs> and and then I knew that there were people who were really telling deep, honest truths in their writing, and that was the writing that I feel like survived. It was a time. I've been thinking about it a lot more because 
there are so many more writers of color. And I think there are ways in which people don't remember that very divided history that was very recent where I remember an editor, I'm not going to say his name because he's still in the world, but he said, we don't publish books by Black people because Black people don't buy books. I mean, at a conference, on a panel, I remember um, Edmund White standing up, getting an award and saying, the gay movement is going to survive where the civil rights movement failed. And I was like, and and a bunch of Black and brown writers got up and turned their back on him. Like people would just say stuff out loud that you would go, what, <laughs> what? It was very separate world. Over her long-spanning career, Jacqueline Woodson has fought for a place in the industry as a Black and queer writer. She has overcome various hurdles and emerged as a powerful voice with a lasting legacy. Jacqueline now works hard to ensure today's writers experiencing similar difficulties in the industry have more resources. In 2018, after receiving the Astrid Lindgren Prize from Sweden, she founded Baldwin for the Arts, an arts residency named for the renowned American writer James Baldwin. I asked her to share more about how it works. Baldwin for the Arts is just, it's a residency for artists. Artists of the global majority to just come and be with other artists and do their work. And we pay for everything, their travel, their food, their space, and just give them a space to be in, to create. For me, selfishly, it's about knowing that artists will continue to come, you know, that artists will continue to be able to make art and that our stories won't get erased. And as a very young artist, I just remember pining for something like this, right? Just needing that space where someone says, I see you. Here's some money to get here. Here's some food to eat while you're here. Um, do your work and change the world. And and the first step in being able to do that work is having it recognized, right? Having someone say, having someone validate you. And there are so many spaces that uh, especially artists of the global majority end up in where they're not validated or they begin to doubt their ability just because of those around them who through microaggressions, <laughs> through through the many ways and sometimes without even knowing it are making them feel lesser than. Yeah. And I mean, today there there are so many more artists of color or writers of color who are gaining more notoriety and it feels like this seismic shift even since I was looking for books for my own kids only 10 or so years ago. But now we're seeing this fight going on in literature and banning books in America. And like you said, it's threatening this erasure of stories and erasure of history. And so as someone who's been around in this sphere and part of this push for voices to be heard for so long, I'm interested in your thoughts on where we're headed and are we going to have to start relying on oral traditions again? We better. <laughs> it's an interesting time. I'm not going to say scary. I'm going to say an interesting time because I think, I remember my friend Toshi Regan said, um, we're in a moment where it's like leaving an abusive partner and this country is the abusive partner. And the closer you get to leaving, the more violent they get. And I think so much of the violence coming down on people of the global majority is about us working to get our independence, which includes, you know, 
the right to vote again, the right to have our children see reflections of themselves in literature, the right to exist in our bodies the way we want to exist in our bodies, the right to love who we want to love, like the right to jog down a street. Like all of these things are very scary for a system of plunder that has for you know, a long time existed in one kind of way. And so I think the thing about what's happening with books and with the banning of so many books that are primarily books by people of color, written to people of color and for everyone, as Jason Reynolds says, is that those books are getting challenged because they're telling the truth about American history. The difference now, of course, is it's getting legislated. It used to be that you just walk into school and some parents like, I don't want that book on the shelf, take it off, or I'm going to steal it and now it's gone. We don't have this problem. But now because they're trying to legislate this, it, it's a different kind of fight. And of course, that fight is going to happen. Publishers aren't backing down. You know, I know Penguin Random House is suing Florida. And I think more of these suits are going to come to fruition. And I also think just like with Rainbow Movement of the 90s, where parents ran to get on school boards and and do the work to be present in the fight against this, that needs to happen. And that is happening. I think um, people are finding alternative ways to get to narrative. I know in some places where kids aren't able to read my books, they're seeing the plays of them, you know, or, or watching the Netflix episode or, or finding other ways around it. And I think that also um, it's a fight that we need to pay close attention to. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about kids. Do you still get to do a lot of school visits? Uh, I'm interested in maybe some of the stories or memories that stick with you from your, your interactions during those. Yeah. I mean, I still thankfully get to see the young people. I was just seeing them in Block Island and Kansas and Texas and Jamaica. And it was so funny because when we were in Jamaica, I was saying that the kids are so intellectually brilliant. And I was reading to them from the year we learned to fly. And this six-year-old girl, she's like, well, that's not possible. That would defy the laws of physics. (laughs) I was just like, Okay, old lady, but just one after the other, every time, you know, I come into contact with young people. And um, I met Jada in Block Island, who was probably the only brown kid I met there. And she just kind of stayed with me the whole time and wants to be a veterinarian. And, you know, it's just so interesting because I think when kids see these mirrors of themselves, suddenly they open up, they begin to have these conversations that they wouldn't otherwise have. I remember going to a school and the teacher didn't want me to read from Visiting Day, which is the story of a girl whose father's incarcerated. So of course I read from it. Of course. And she said, you know, we don't have any kids who are dealing with incarceration in this classroom. And it was a big classroom. And so I read it and then Right after I finished, I said, well, I really want to read this because it's, it's, it's about, a, you know, the girl's dad is in prison, but it's about family and the different ways we have family and, it, and people, even if they don't have a, know someone incarcerated, they know what it means to have to leave somebody because there's divorce. There are all these ways in which you have to spend time with. She got that. I read it. And then afterwards, one kid raised his hand. He's like, my dad's in prison. Another girl raised her hand. She's like, my brother's in prison. My cousin's like about six or seven kids knew someone that was incarcerated. And the teacher said, you know, I never knew. And I'm just thinking because you never gave them the space to have this conversation. And that kind of stuff, just hearing how kids can be so brave when they 
have the tools with which to come by it, right? <laughs> like suddenly there's a conversation in the classroom that they can be a part of and just not even knowing the way that not having those conversations have silenced them. So, but yeah, I meet kids all the time and I'm always blown away. <laughs> that story about the classroom though, that's cra- That's so telling. Not asking, I mean, that you know, what a moment for that teacher to look inward. I know, because it's, we set the tone. As adults, we set the tone. We do, we do. And, you know, and speaking with a lot of librarians and writers and educators of all kinds, it's always really interesting to have these conversations about giving kids space to learn and having these thoughts prompted. And it really comes down to giving kids more credit, you know. Like in your TED Talk, which has these millions and millions of views, you talk about the importance of allowing kids to read slowly, for example. And you've made comments that I've heard that maybe you would have been treated differently in today's day and age based on your reading as a kid. So I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts on that, if you could expand. Oh my goodness, don't get me started. (laughs) Um, I do think that I would have probably been diagnosed as dyslexic or having some kind of reading difference and that people would have come along to try to fix it. And that quote unquote fixing would have been me reading faster and me not reading things over and over again and moving on from one text to the next much quicker. And I do know that that is how I became a writer because of how I read. And I do think there is something in our society, sadly, that no longer lets young people be outside of some kind of quote unquote mainstream that finds it problematic, that looks on a future for them that is not as quote unquote successful if they don't have these particular tools without looking at an empire that A, is already broken and dead, (laughs) and that the fact that the job that they may go for might not even be invented yet. I mean, I think we really have to stop looking at our young people's experience as a reflection of our own, like looking at what we experienced and putting that backstory on our young people. Because they're, theirs is different. It's so different. And because it's different, we even in terms of the way their brains work with being able to be in so many places at once, right? They're on their computers, they're on their phones. They have three different windows open on the internet. Like there's so many things going on and us looking at it thinking, well, I just sat down and I read a book and I had some quiet time. And yes, I think there's room for that, but there's also room for the way their brains work. Every time we ask them to fix something on our phone, it shows, right? (laughs) The minute we need something done, it's like you call a young person because they have those skills. And I do think that in this day and age, if I was in a classroom and I was as slow as I was as a reader, someone would have caught that and they would have figured out how to change it. And that change would have been resulted in me not being able to memorize, you know, whole books. That it would have resulted in me not being able to look at a Nikki Giovanni poem and and think of a story because I've read that Nikki Giovanni poem so many times that it's almost its own narrative in my head. It would have resulted in me not sitting for long hours just writing and rewriting the 
what seems like the same thing, but has been tweaked and changed in terms of its mood just because of a couple of words and, and grammatical additions. So I do... I worry. I worry when people say every young kid is a writer because I don't believe that. <laughs> you know, I believe every young kid, every young person has a gift. It's not necessarily writing. I worry when people say that that child is not reading up to the level of the rest of the class because what does that level mean? And I worry when some kid is quiet and outside of the rest of the group and is getting pity for it while they seem completely happy to be in that place, you know? So, so again, going back to our own backstories as adults and taking those and looking at young people and saying, oh, this must be going on for them because that's what was going on for me is, is not what we should be doing. <laughs> I don't know how to say it better. Yeah, quietness and just comfort with that, you know, in the classroom from educators. I think it's Knoxville by Nikki Giovanni that you're referencing before and that's interestingly also what Renee Watson read for her passage in our in our interview. Oh, that's so funny. And I love that there's another one too where she talks about her grandmother calls her in to make biscuits and she doesn't she's like I don't want to make no biscuits and her grandmother's like oh these kids these kids and she says and both of us neither of us say what we really want to say which is basically that one day the old woman won't be there to teach her how to make biscuits and she doesn't want to she doesn't want to acknowledge that, and that's why she's not going in to make those bisques to learn. And it's, it's beautiful. What is giving you most hope for the future when you're looking forward and thinking about what you're seeing around you and all these visits all around the country and just, you know, in your, your world? What gives you the most hope right now? It's definitely young people. <laughs> Not only young people and getting back to um, the phone thing, young people and their tools. I'm thinking about, you know, New York has the highest um, rate of segregated schools in the country. And I'm thinking about when my daughter was in high school and they organized um, a walkout against this fact. And tens of thousands of kids left their classroom and they did it with IG and they did it with TikTok and they did it with Twitter and they got out into the streets and just the way that they know how to organize whenever I hear them say, this is the what y'all left us, but we're not leaving this for our grandchildren. Like just the fire. Like I just remember being a kid and and my grandmother always said, I'm going to knock the fire out of you. And that was, I, I didn't, it was such a Southern thing to say. And it was basically saying, I'm going to teach you how not to be sassy. I'm going to teach you how not to be, you know, not to talk back. I'm going to teach you how not to be outspoken. And basically I'm going to beat you behind. Like, like that's what she was saying. Like if I sucked my teeth or if I rolled my eyes or if I said something sassy back to her and then looking back on it is like the idea of trying to knock the fire out of someone comes from enslavement times, right? And my family descended from enslaved folks. And that idea of like trying to break a person. And what I know about young people is they haven't been broken and, and they're fiery and, and they're ready to fight for this world and their existence in it. It's totally where I find my hope above all else is just being in intergenerational communities and talking to the young people. Yeah. That makes me feel good too. It's funny, I was thinking about like the very first story, I was talking about like the goneness from Bread at the Bone and that idea of like you're carrying all your memories, all of the things that are like, you're carrying it all for better, for worse. So it's very hard to like strip out something that, you know, comes along. Yeah, and you know, I think if you 
erase some some of the other stuff that might go with it. And I think that's why people have a hard time writing for young people because they're like, oh, middle school years were too painful. So I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Now I did promise my daughter Flo's class that they could ask you some questions and they sent in like 500. <laughs> that was very sweet. Although some of them were like, what does she think about technology? Or should I call you Jackie or Jacqueline? <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I was like, you call her Miss Woodson. Um, <laughs> one student asked a great question, which was, how do your words flow? Out of my brain, down my arm, through my pen, into the notebook. <laughs> and, then, and then I read everything out loud, and then it has to flow vocally as well. So it has to sound a certain way. As long as I'm sitting in my chair, they're flowing. You know, I don't believe in writer's block. I don't. I think that's fear and I just I just write and 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 they flow thankfully. <laughs> we heard earlier from Jacqueline that she thinks of her own work as part of a continuum of stories and creators that existed before her and will go on unfolding after her. For her custom reading challenge, Reading Black, she recommends mostly contemporary books by black authors for high school and adult readers with some older works sprinkled in, and invites us to look for the influences and interconnections between these overlapping voices. One thing I was thinking of was, it's reading Black, right? Reading the books that people are trying to erase. And I was thinking of, um, by the time you've gotten to high school, you've read a lot of stuff. And the work you're reading at this point is building on that. So looking forward and looking back. With this list of books, I was wondering what books do these remind them of from their younger period of time? You can check out Jacqueline's challenge and all of our author reading challenges at thereadingculturepod.com. Cicely Lewis, AKA the Readwoke librarian in Gwinnett County, Georgia, is back for some more pearls of wisdom today. She just couldn't be contained in one episode. So today, let's first listen to Cicely talk about the importance of read-alouds with high school students. I have a program with my special needs, the Moy program, and they come in every Wednesday and I read to them and we do social-emotional learning. So I read picture books to them. For other students, I read an excerpt from like Angie Thomas' book or... Uh, Alan Gratt's book, like a really high action-packed scene um, to really get them interested. Or, you know, Jacqueline Woodson or, you know, Jason Reynolds' book, I read from those and um, I pick a really good scene to really catch their interest. I recently read, uh, we had a program for kids who were getting in trouble and they just needed a little extra help and we're doing restorative justice. So we had a program for them. And I went into that program and started reading to those kids. And I was reading uh, Meg Medina's Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass. And they loved that book. First of all, they loved the title. So they loved that book. So that was, <laughs> that was a really good uh, read aloud for them. Since the time that Cicely created her Read Woke program, designed to, as she puts it, get her students to read books that challenge social norms, give voice to the silenced, and seek to challenge the status quo, the word woke has become very politicized. I asked her to share her thoughts on this. My heart goes out to all those librarians, but what I always tell them is if you have to change the name, but you still are 
following the principles? Are you still providing books that amplify the voices of the global majority, challenge the status quo? Then the job is getting done. So me, my program, the name will never change. I'm not uh, backing down from it. Um, I work in a school where I, you know, I'm supported, but I do encourage librarians to just continue to do the work. One of my best friends, um, her mom said something really powerful. We were just talking about, you know, being a mom and trying to get things done. And she said, did you meet your goal? You may have had to go around the way and do different ways to get to that goal, but meet the goal. Provide the representation for the students, provide the access for the students. And if we're doing that, then that's great. You have to decide as a school librarian what you have to do. You know, woke was a word born in the black community and now it's being weaponized. I just challenge or encourage librarians to keep, and educators, classroom teachers, parents, everybody, to keep doing the work and let's, you know, try to meet our goal in any way that we can. The word is all about providing awareness about issues that matter that people are actually experiencing so we can develop compassionate and empathetic young people who are going to run this world one day. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Jacqueline Woodson. Jacqueline Woodson, y'all. She is a mic drop guest for me. So we thought this would be a good time to take a brief summer hiatus. The next two episodes will be replays of some of my early favorites that you may have missed. I hope you'll catch up on those episodes while we catch our breath and enjoy a little vacation. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Lone Women, by Victor Laval and Scythe by Neil Schusterman. If you enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and really helps, especially on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our new newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and insights. Also, be sure to check out the children's book podcast with teacher and librarian Matthew Winner. It's a book podcast made for kids ages 6 to 12 that explores big ideas and the way that stories can help us feel seen, understood, and valued. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.